So one of today's guests, iconic actress, producer, author, and activist Marlo Thomas never wanted to marry. She saw what she believed as the way marriage had to be, one person giving up their dream for another, and just knew it wasn't for her. And then one fateful day in 1977, she appeared as an hour-long guest on the legendary daytime talk show hosted by my other guest today, Phil Donahue. Both were smitten, to put it mildly. They sensed something powerful had happened, but neither of them knew that that conversation, aired before millions of viewers on daytime TV, would effectively be a first date that would lead to a marriage that has now lasted more than four decades. And more recently, reflecting on what makes a relationship last that long, they got really curious and began to set up double dates with many celebrity couples that they know and others that they didn't. People like Viola Davis and her husband, actor Julius Tennant, filmmaker Rob Reiner and his wife Michelle, award-winning journalist Bob Woodward and Elsa Walsh, Ted Danson and Mary Steenburgen, Neil Patrick Harris and his actor-chef husband David Burka, John Leguizamo and his wife Justine, and so many others. And those hour-long conversations, they went so deep, so fast, got so vulnerable and open, and at times really hysterically funny, they turned the interviews into the best-selling book, What Makes a Marriage Last? And now those conversations and more are featured in their new original podcast series, Double Date. We had so much fun talking about those early moments in their lives and relationships, what was really going on in each one of their heads and hearts as they sat there across from each other trying to figure out what is really happening here in the early days and how those thoughts and conversations and their relationship has really evolved over time and what they learned when they sat down with so many people to uncover what it means, what it takes to be in a relationship for a really long time. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So I think it would be fun to uh, take a little bit of step back in time. I want to dive into your exploration of long-term partnerships, what brought you together, and also your 
deep dive, asking a lot of different couples how they have endured. Um, but really curious about you individually a little bit first. Marlo, I know that um, as a kid, apparently your nickname was Miss Independence. Yeah. Tell me how that came about. Oh, I guess because I was, you know, strong-headed and wanted to do everything myself. And uh, so my dad nicknamed me Miss Independence, you know, whenever. And I, it was half loving and half, you know, like, all right already, you know. I just was very strong-willed, which actually he... He fostered. He liked my sister and brother and I, you know, to have our own opinions and stuff. But anyway, my my nickname was Miss Independence. Yeah, which is interesting, right? Because your dad, very strong personality in front of the camera, especially when you're a kid. And it seems like also the in your parents' relationship, your dad was the one who sort of, they both decided to put his career forward. And your mom primarily became a mom and had started her career, but then pretty much put it on hold. Right. Uh, well, my dad, you know, they met in Detroit uh, on a radio show, and then they married. I was born in Detroit. I wasn't there for more than a few months, but because my father wanted to go where the bigger nightclubs were. He was a nightclub performer as well as a radio uh, personality. I mean, he was trying to make a living, but but nightclubs was his passion. So he wanted to go to Chicago where there were bigger clubs, obviously, than in Detroit. And so my mom had to make a decision as to whether she wanted to marry my dad and go to Chicago and wherever else he was going to go and give up her little 15-minute radio show, which she did. And uh, so they got married and they had me and then they went to Chicago. And my dad made his career there. And then the great Abe Lasfogel, the great agent who represented Frank Sinatra and Judy Garland and Danny Kaye and all the big shots, saw my dad and brought him to Hollywood. So um, that was kind of our trajectory. We were moving around a lot. And so we really were raised, my sister and brother and I were really raised in Beverly Hills. Yeah. As a kid, what was your sense of what a marriage meant? What a long-term partnership meant? What was, when you looked at that, did you have a sense for this is the, the model for it and these are the expectations? Yeah. I thought it wasn't just a model. It was what marriage was. You know, it was like, to me, it was, that was it. A man, uh, the husband had his work, his dreams, what he wanted to do in life. And the wife was the um, sort of supplementary character in the play. And so she raised the children, which was important. She tended to the home and she took care of everybody. And for that, you know, she had a family, she had security, she had a nice husband, a good marriage. Um, but I knew early on that marriage wasn't going to be for me. Because I thought that was marriage. And if that was marriage, I didn't really want to do it. Mm -hmm. I wanted a career and I wanted to travel and I wanted, I kind of wanted to do what my father did, which was do what I wanted to do. And I knew, I mean, not, not that I knew, but I realized, I thought that, well, you know, I'm not going to be able to marry a man who's going to stay home with the children and take care of the house. So I will... Um, probably not ever marry. That was kind of what my feeling was. And I wasn't sad about it. I just didn't want it. I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to play that role. And I had a lot of boyfriends and I went to London and did a play and for about a year and I was uh, very independent and I was having a time of my life. I loved my work and I wanted, I wanted my work and I always felt bad for my mom that she gave up her work because my mother was a good singer and she loved singing. But 
you know, th that was her choice. And so this was my choice. And, and if I, I really do believe if I had not met Phil, I would not have married. There really wasn't anybody that I ever went out with. You know, I didn't get married till I was 42 years old. So from the time I was 20 to when you're really seriously dating, you don't really consider high school and early years of college, I think. When I was seriously dating as a young woman, I was never looking for a, a, a husband. And as I look back, there wasn't anybody that I would have wanted to spend my life with. They were all lovely people, educated men uh, who were good at their work and all the things, but it just wasn't for me. Yeah. Phil, I'm curious on, on your side, as a kid, especially, you know, when, when your family unit and your upbringing, I know you end up in Catholic school. Did you have a sensibility or a model for what a long-term relationship was like, even in the youngest years? I never thought about that. I grew up believing that if you said I do, you did for the rest of your life. So, you know, divorce was never, it never ended my consciousness. There may have been an aunt who was divorced in our family. I don't remember. But I do remember crawling over somebody to get to communion at Mass. That was usually the relative who was divorced. So it never occurred to me that this was going to be my drama. And holy cow, it was. I mean, it not only was uh, a divorce, but I suddenly had four sons all to myself. And I didn't know what to do with them. I mean, do you help them all with, your, with their homework? So I, you know, I had all these, uh, and I was still on the air, tap dancing every day for an hour, and, uh, you know, racing home to make sure that, you know, they got home from school all right, and that whatever hunger they may have had, I was, I had to take care of. But I had a very unusual... <laughs> Uh, early married life, uh, in which I suddenly found myself to be a single parent. And I really, uh, it was an eye-opener for me. I realized what women had been doing all, all these years, right in front of me. And I, I didn't realize how um, stressful that was, and how you know, it was a full-time job. You, I mean, here they were, live, breathing people <laughs> looking at you as if to say, I'm hungry, Dad. When are we going to have supper? So all of those things came down on my head at once. So that was a... I grew up in a hurry. Yeah, and, and that really, you know, that sets up the time that uh, you and Marlo really connect, you know. You're both in the world of entertainment. You're both very forward-facing. Phil on TV on, on a daily basis at that point. Marlo has this hit show and then involved in so many different projects and, and also becoming a, a really strong and public feminist and voice for feminism. And then there's this fateful day in 1977 where Marlo, I, from what I understand, I think you were promoting a book when you land on Phil's show. 
I was promoting a movie called Thieves. Uh -huh. ah, okay. And Phil had been divorced about four years by that time. And, and I, you know, and I, I was going on a talk show. I wasn't expecting to fall in love with anybody. I was on a tour. I was, I had been in other cities that I don't remember, but I knew the next city was Denver, Colorado. That was my next city. So uh, I did his show, and um, and I, his show was not in L.A. at the time, so I wasn't that familiar with him. I knew that he was great. I knew that his show was a must-stop and, and be a part of because he had an hour show, and and uh, and my press agents all said, this guy's the biggest thing in the Midwest. You have to do his show. So, And an hour was kind of daunting. You know, one hour, one guest. I didn't think I was that interesting, especially at 9 a.m. But anyway, I was in the green room waiting you know, to start, and he came in. He was putting on his jacket, and uh, when he walked in the room... I, it really was a, a, quite a chemical reaction I had. He, he had these big, beautiful blue eyes and this shock of white hair. He was putting on this navy blue jacket. And, oh, he just, he looked like a choir boy. And she was a, I, I think you have to be Catholic to understand this, but she was, to me, immediately an impure thought. <laughs> uh, so we had an instant reaction and it's interesting, Jonathan, because we interviewed so many couples for our book and then for our podcast. The book is called What Makes a Marriage Last. The podcast is called Double Date. And many people had that moment where they met each other and or even saw each other. Uh, Billy Crystal saw Janice when he was 18 years old, uh, and he's married to Janice for, I think it's 50 years. He saw her on the beach. She was throwing a ball with a friend, and he saw this girl in a pink bikini walk by, and he said to his friend, I'm going to marry her. I mean, these, these people, you know, you, you have that reaction. It's just... It's amazing how many of our yeah, guests... Yeah. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote, wrote the book Blink, right. in which he makes the point that first impressions are, for many of us, everything. And that was the case in a lot of the couples that we yeah. featured on yeah. in our book. Yeah, that, that inciting incident, that moment, fascinates me as well. I, I'm curious, you know, people can go back and actually watch that clip, watch the original conversation, which, you know, ostensibly is an interview, but really it's obvious as a viewer that there's something else going on there at the same time. And it sounds like both of you sense that too. When you wrap that episode, you know, Marlo, you've got to move on to Denver, as you shared. You're on this tour where you're going city to city. What are you both thinking after that? Like, that was interesting, that was nice, or there's something that needs to be followed up here? I, I was a bit shaken by it because I was leaving and I, I had this feeling about this man that I, I'd never see him again. He lived in Chicago. I lived in Los Angeles. I was on my way to Denver. It was like a one-night stop. And I, 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 I just had this very strong feeling about him. I, aside from the physical uh, of how, how good-looking I thought he was and whatever else was going on chemically inside of me, you know, there's something about talent that is very, it's an aphrodisiac, you know, when somebody does something well, I mean, if you're a carpenter or an actor or whatever, 
whatever you are and you do it well, it's, it's, it's very alluring. And he was so good in, at the show. I mean, I, as I say, I hadn't seen the show. And the way he orchestrated the whole thing, he had such confidence. He was interviewing me with a lot of confidence and savoir faire. Then he jumped off the stage and ran into the audience and talked to them. And then he took a call from a caller. I mean, he just was like a conductor of an orchestra. He had absolutely not a qualm about anything. Then he'd come back to me, go back to them. Huge amount of confidence. Confidence is sexy. So I already was physically attracted to him. And then his, his talent was very alluring. And when the show was over, it was like, it was hard because here was this one hour of intense focus on him and his intense focus on me. And then it was, well, goodbye. And I said, whoever the woman in your life is very lucky. And he said, well, you're just fascinating. And then I left and I, uh, you know, I, I felt, well, I'm never going to see him again. I felt that. And, and I said to, there was a, one of his producers was walking me out to my car, which is, they always, you know, show you how to get going. And I said, wow, he is really an attractive man. And she said, yeah, and, and, uh, and he's available. I said, really? She said, yeah, he's divorced and he has four kids. And uh, I said, oh, so I had that piece of information. So at least he wasn't married. And then I, then I got in my car and left town. And the next morning I found a note. After you called me. Yeah. That was my call back, yeah. Uh, from uh, written in my son Kevin's hand, Marlo Thomas called. Well, he had well, called me the night before, but I was out, uh, as you said, gallivanting in Chicago. Right. So, so Phil, when you, when you called the night before, why? What, what, was, what did you want to happen? Well, you know, I'd already, uh, I'd already measured her as a bad thought. And so I certainly had interest in her. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to be, you know, I didn't want to be pushy. I thought that was not a... Well, you had a little speech, you said, ready to say what a good guest I was. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And, and she was. She was a great guest because not only was she a, a, an entertainment star and good-looking, but she was up-to-date on important issues, feminism most certainly. And my audience, you know, this is 1977. You know, my audience was largely female, daytime audience. And uh, she was perfect as a guest. And that's pretty important if it's one guest for the whole hour. <laughs> right. So I used to, you know, I used to say, back in those days, I used to say she was a hangover guest. So if I was hungover, <laughs> you know, all I had to do was clear my throat and she'd carry it along. But you called me and you said, well, when I come out to L.A. sometime, I'd like to take you to lunch. To lunch, yeah. Right. Dinner sounded a little leering. So I thought, I thought to myself, oh, my God, it's going to take forever. It's going to wait for he comes to L.A., then we'll have lunch, and he lives in Chicago. So I said to him, well, why don't you come and visit me in Denver? I'm... I'm Denver can't be too far from you know, Chicago. No, is Denver far from yeah. Chicago? Is Denver far from Chicago? He goes, oh, no, it's not far <laughs> at all. So um, he hopped on a plane and 
and he came to have dinner with me. And and it sort of was a continuation of the hour we spent on the air. We we talked a mile a minute, had a lot in common. We were both raised by by uh, you know Catholic parents. My dad was from Toledo. He's from Cleveland. We were very much alike, and our politics were very much alike. And and we just you know we we just hit it off. That moment began our three year relationship. Uh, you know, which was mostly long distance and commuter kind of relationship. And then we married three years later. But even then, I, I didn't really want to get married. I was, what you say, crazy about him. But I wasn't admitting that I was in love. But I was, I really wanted to be with him. And we did everything we could. I mean, he had these four boys that lived with him, his a wonderful daughter that lived with his ex-wife. And so he was constantly you know, trying to see the daughter, being with his boys, coming to L.A., maybe bring a couple of the boys with him that were too young to stay home. I mean, it was, it was, it was rough going, but, but we did it. We went back and forth from Chicago to L.A. every weekend. And I was raising four sons. The issue scared me, really. I wasn't sure what to do with them. And I was, uh, I'm not proud of the fact that I was, I was kind of a, crazed parent, you know. And one of the sons said to Marlo on one occasion when she was at our home. Michael. Yeah, Michael said, I like it when you're here. Well, you were a little happier. Yeah. You know, I mean, let's face it. To raise four boys and then be on your own, it's a tremendous amount of pressure. And I know also... um, you know, you're doing this, as you said, largely long distance and finding ways to navigate being together, which can be incredibly hard for a lot of people. At, at some point in that, that window, I know you also kind of hit a moment where you thought it, it was just too much. It was too hard. There's too much distance between us and we need to break up. And you did, but that didn't last. Yeah, we broke up for about three months. We were we had been, I think, to Sacramento or somewhere. Phil had a, a remote of his show. I think it was in Sacramento. And, uh, and I had gone there to join him because it was a quick jump from L.A. And after that weekend, we both said, you know what? This is just, it's just too hard. I mean, I was very active then. I produced about 12 movies for television. And I was producing them and starring in them. I was really committed and he, of course, was very committed to a daily show and his children. And he said, look, I, I got to get my boys. I got to get them raised up. I got to get them through high school. You know, I, I, I can't be leaving them all the time. I'm very guilty about that. And, you know, I think you're the greatest and everything, but, it, you know, it just doesn't. And I said the same thing. I mean, we both knew that it didn't work. And so I went back to my home in Beverly Hills, and he went back to Chicago. And so we... We did not speak for three months. I mean, we made it a real break. And uh, I was miserable. And I found out later, so was he. He went, you know, sort of dating girls he'd known before, as did I. But it was uh, no denying it. There was no replacement for him. And uh, after about three months, we uh, decided we just had to find a way to put our lives together. So who, who made that first move? Well, I probably did, huh? You know very well you did. Why don't you just say that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I called you. Where were you at the time? You I was up? in bed. It was 3 o'clock in the morning. 
Oh, wow. You have a better memory. You were in Vail or somewhere skiing with the boys. Uh Uh-huh. Do you remember what you said? I know you do, because you've said it before. Yeah, I said, uh, I never thought uh, I'd miss somebody as much as I miss you. You said, I never thought anyone would be this irreplaceable. Uh Uh-huh. I probably did. And thank you for remembering. So that prompts you to both kind of realize, okay, so this has to happen. We have to figure it out. Um, But when he said, I never thought anyone could be this irreplaceable, what you know about Phil is he really says what he means and he doesn't doesn't, uh, flourish. I mean, I'm sure there were all kinds of words around that he could have said, but I picked up the phone and said, hello. And he said, he didn't say hello. After not hearing him for three months, for him to say, I never thought anyone would be this irreplaceable. It hit my heart because it's exactly what I was feeling. And I started to cry on the phone and he started to cry. And then he said, I'm, I'm skiing with the boys. And in the next couple of weeks, when I can get away, I'd like to come visit you. And so then he did, and then, and then we talked it out. And the and the the thing on his mind most was, I've got to get my boys through high school. I've got to get every one of them graduated from high school. And that, again, was very appealing. He was a responsible man. He was responsible to his children. He was responsible. He was in love with me, but he was responsible. And um, so we kind of mapped out our life. You know that. I would move to New York, and we would get an apartment, and um, he wouldn't be able to move for about four years, uh, and then he would move his whole show, uh, and the kids would all be in college then, and uh, that's what he did. He moved his show. Yeah, it was a whole—it was really a, a revolution in many ways. Um, uh, first of all, I— I really didn't plan to be in New York, but the show was growing, and NBC made the invitation, and 30 Rock was a seductive address for me, especially at that time. And so off we went. Well, four years certain, later. Yeah. Well, it certainly, it certainly made the relationship easier. Well, it made us, it, yeah, a lot of us and, to get married. You know, we didn't have a long-distance feature. I mean, we got to, really, the the pilots and the flight attendants got to call us by our first name. Chicago, New York, Chicago, New York. Every weekend. Yeah. Every weekend. It was. It was. I mean, we were on an airplane a lot. Yeah. Both of us. And um, we we picked New York because I, I said to Phil... I can't really work in Chicago. I can continue my career in both New York and L.A. And you said... Well, (laughs) I can... Work in New York and D.C. He said, I can't work in L.A. I'm not interested in in doing a show about entertainment. You know, he he would have some people as entertainers, like me, but that wasn't the base of his show. The base of his show was really politics and... What the, the you know what are the social fabric of the country had Ralph Nader on all the time Jesse Jackson Gloria Steinem those were really the the base of his show yeah. so uh, and senators and presidents and 
and you know the head of General Motors. I mean, they really were not living in L.A., so that wasn't the place for him. And so he said, I can live in New York or D.C. And I said, I can live in New York or L.A. So there it was. New York was the city. So that's what we moved to. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi's Starter Pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, and deodorant wipes and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with the code GOODLIFE at lumideodorant.com. Don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code GOODLIFE. Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere ribbed beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com slash GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365-day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash G-L-P to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash G-L-P or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. 
so you end up in New York together, um, eventually get married and start building a life. Um, but the occasion of your marriage is also interesting, especially for Marlo, because you had been a very vocal, outspoken voice of feminism for many years and still are. But there were certain assumptions, I think, about the fact that you had identified for a long time as, a, as an adult single woman without a, a need to have to get married. When you actually got married, it seems like there were certain people who were very happy for you, and then there were others who felt, to a certain sense, betrayed. Yes. Well, I mean, the people that I knew were very happy for me. Gloria Steinem and all my best friends uh, that were feminists were very happy for me. But there were women that I didn't know in the country who wrote to me and said, how could you be married? I mean, I've always been able to say to my mother, Marlo Thomas isn't crazy and she's not married. So I had somehow become, you know, a, a symbol for other women who didn't want to marry that it was okay not to be married because I wasn't a weirdo and I wasn't, I don't know, whatever. I didn't have a, you know, a, a unicorn on my head. So I was a normal <clears throat> person. And uh, What did that passenger say on the plane? Oh, right. We were, uh, we were on our plane, on the plane to our honeymoon in Greece. And uh, we'd been very quiet. Nobody knew that we were getting married. We got married in my parents' living room with just 35 people, my family and Phil's family, and that was all. So the next morning, we were on our way to Greece, and Phil had gone to the bathroom, and I was sitting there with my engagement ring and my wedding ring and all. And this woman from across the aisle said to me, are you Marlo Thomas? And I said, yes. And she said, are you married? And I said, yes, thinking I'm the blushing bride, the first person that's going to know that I'm married outside of my family. And she said, well, how could you get married? I am so disappointed. And I was struck by that. You know, I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? I've let all these people down. And Phil came back from the bathroom and I was upset. And he said, I told him what, he, what this woman said. He said, what woman? Where is she? And uh, anyway, I got over it. But it was it was striking that that a lot of males said that to me and a lot of and that woman on the airplane. It was just uh, I, it was shocking. I just I never knew that. I, knew, I never knew that was what what I was standing for out there. I wasn't meaning to stand for anything. And when you got finally got married. Yeah. And you told your mother that you were about to get married. And that you were going to marry a man with four sons, she said... Oh, what a joke on you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny. It seems like the joke was on everyone because you've now been together for, I guess it's over 40 years um, in marriage. And you decided recently to write a book. But I'm curious, which really explored, which... which uh, sat where you sat down with uh, 40 different couples who had been together for a very long time and, and really sort of said, well, well, what's going on here? What was the reason? What was the inciting incident for you undertaking that project? Well, um, for years, people had asked us to talk about our marriage and we never wanted to. We really did feel that it was kept strong by its privacy. And so we didn't talk about it. And and then they would ask us, you know, well, what's the secret sauce? What do you do that's different? What? And we couldn't think of anything we did that was any different. We'd certainly made a lot of 
life accommodations for each other. I moved to New York. He moved to New York. We did everything we could to, to be together. But other than that, you know, we loved each other. We liked each other. We had a good time together. I couldn't really put my finger on anything. And so when we were about to turn, when we were on our 39th anniversary, we, we heard about a couple, right, that were getting a divorce. Yeah. Yeah, that was a blow. Uh, 39 years and you get divorced? And we said, wow, how does that happen? Well, they've been married like 25 years. We were married 39 and it was around our 39th anniversary. And we said, how does that happen? When are you safe if you're going to get a divorce after 26, 27 years? So we started talking about that. What, what did they do wrong and what did we do right? And how, did, how did people stay together? We just didn't know, especially people who are, one of them is not just backing down, but they're all, both of them are very involved in the marriage. And so we decided to talk to a lot of people that had been married a long time because you can't learn from somebody who's been married five years but you got to, you know, once you've been married 20 years, you've got something you can say, something that you've learned. And so that's what we decided to do. Four people around the table. And, you know, we thought maybe the interviews would go 15 minutes. No, we did not. I figured they'd be about an hour, but they were like three hours. Wow. Well, we yeah. never thought 15 minutes. And finally, I would say, I'm sorry, but we really have to leave. <laughs> uh, but it was... Uh, you know, when we opened up, they opened up. Right. It was easier for them to talk with us about personal issues. And I think it made the interviews more interesting. Well, I don't think they would have ever been as successful if we hadn't. In fact, when we decided to do it, it was my idea and Phil wasn't all that for it because he said to me, I don't want to talk about our marriage. We've always been private about this. I don't want to talk about it. And I said to him, I mean, you learn after 40 years that you're not going to have your mate do something they don't want to do. So I said, you don't have to. I'll talk about what I want to talk about. They'll talk, and you'll be there to ask questions and so forth. But as we got started, it was so fun, and it was so much like a double date that, you know, if Billy Crystal talked about, uh, you know, seeing his wife on the beach, you know, and then Phil talked about meeting me on the show, and then somebody else talked about being jealous, Mark Consuelos, Kelly Ripa's husband talked about his jealousy. Then Phil talked about his jealousy. And little by little, he opened up as they opened up, and they opened up as we opened up. And it became just like you would on a double date. You know, you, one couple can't do all the talking. Everybody talks. And when everybody starts talking, they start revealing things, and it's, it's fun, you know? I mean, when we started out, we said, this can't be a how-to book. Because a how-to book would be like a pamphlet. It's really a what book. What did you do when this happened? What, what did Kira Sedgwick and Kevin Bacon do when they lost all their money to, um, to uh, Bernie Madoff? You know, what, what did Jesse Jackson and Jackie Jackson do when he had a baby out of wedlock? You know, what did Chris Guest do when Jamie Lee Curtis, he found out Jamie Lee Curtis had a, uh, an addiction problem? I mean, what did each and then, then how did they get back and, to And what did the Sullenbergers do when her phone at home rang and the voice on the other end said, your husband just landed his plane in the Hudson River? Right. I mean, and of course, the world fell on their house. 
You so, know, how do they adjust to that? So all of the couples had, and it was, it was fun to talk to like Sullenberger and John McEnroe and Patty Smythe. So we had, and Jimmy Carter and Rosalind Carter, all kinds of people from all walks of life. And when we got off the road, Phil said that the thing he noticed was what? Oh, both people wanted the marriage. Uh, that you can't have one person as a kind of dragging the other along in the relationship. It really does take, it seems fundamental now that I think about it, both partners have to want the marriage. Equally. Because I know, and I'm sure you've uh, seen it, Jonathan, as we have, in many marriages there's one person that sort of doing all the accommodating, putting it all together, making life interesting, inviting people over, you know, trying to, you know, or making up, being the one that makes up all the time. Uh, that Those marriages don't work mm -hmm. because the other person just feels, the person that's doing all the giving and the fixing becomes exhausted and has no nourishment. Both people have to be nourished. That's what nourishes the marriage. And we figure that out along the way, that one person can't be the one that always says, I'm sorry, or, or says, let's try to fix this. That, that can't be. Both people have to, to make accommodations for that, that the other person is not you. And they're going to have different desires and different needs. And each person has to accommodate that. And I think accommodation was one of the words that we came off the road with and thought, and I had never thought of that word before, that it really is one of the secrets to a happy marriage is a, a happy accommodation that you say, you know what, this is what he needs. This is what he wants. This is what she, who she is. This is what she has to do. If you don't have that kind of thing, you know, I remember one time I was very, very busy and running around uh, sort of madcap. And a friend of my, this friend told me, a male friend who was our friend of both of us, said to Phil, oh my God, doesn't that drive you crazy that she's running around like that? And, and Phil said to this man, don't rain on her parade. And that so touched me. Do you remember that? It was Chuck. Said it to oh, Chuck. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. And it so touched me that Phil had said that to him without me in earshot. He said, don't rain on her parade. So that's very loving and very caring. He wants me to have what I want, and I want him to have what he wants. And that's what you do as a parent. But spouses don't often do that for each other. I mean, a mom and dad will do anything to give their children everything they want, to get what they want, the best education, this, this, a car when they, all the stuff that you possibly can do for your children. But we don't sometimes apply that to our spouse. And if we did a little more of that for our spouse, even I know from women that I've met, even to the point where the husband realizes that the wife really wants to go back to school and they need to find money in the budget for the wife to go back to school. And often when the money is allotted, it's for the children to go to school and this and that, but Sometimes the wife wants to go back to school. And to find a way to make that possible for her is a very big act of love and accommodation. 
And I've known a lot of women who have been in that position. And marriage counseling. Yes. That's a real act of love. You know, when one partner feels, you know, a little bit threatened about whatever reason and suggests marriage counseling, that, you know, that really says, I love you. Right. And I'd like this to last. That was the, that revelation happened during Se our interview. Several couples, Brian Cranston and his wife, Robin Dearden, and, and uh, Neil Patrick Harris and David Burka, several couples uh, do marriage counseling. And it says that it's, it's really helped them. Brian Cranston calls it a tune-up. When we need a tune-up, we go right. see the marriage counselor. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is also Marlo what you just described as wanting for your partner, what so often a parent is seen as wanting for their children, and um, being there to help figure out how both people can be fully expressed, can be confident, can be alive, and be themselves in the relationship. I think that's so powerful. And what's interesting to me is that is the reimagining of marriage from what you saw the model to be growing up. This was sort of redefining it as, no, this is the way that I can understand being in this type of relationship, but reimagining it as something that is more, more equal, more, more generous. Roomier, roomier. The definition that I grew up with was it was a very tight place and it didn't have any, you know, windows to open. When we were uh, married, and still commuting, I had an aunt who said to me, that's not a marriage. And I thought to myself, this is why I never married. Because there's such a tight definition of marriage as, you know, in other words, a marriage, people live in the same city. If you're living in two different cities and you're commuting back and forth, in her mind, that was not a marriage. And um, that was helpful to me to realize that's what we did. We defined marriage for ourselves. And that's what everybody has to do. When I was a student at the University of Notre Dame in the 50s, we had a marriage counseling session, all males. So we sat in the audience, and a young married couple on the stage served as the advisors. And the man said, the secret to a happy marriage is find a good wife. <laughs> that, was, that was marriage counseling <laughs> at Notre Dame in the 50s. God. There's, you know, it's, it's all our responsibility. You know? Yeah, find a good wife. And, of course, we all leaned forward. <laughs> and, and you were like, what, this, 17 or 18? Yeah, and accepted this, this uh, brilliant counsel <laughs> as uh, important because it was coming from a married couple. In find Notre a good Dame. wife. Oh, okay. At Notre Dame. Let me get out and find a good wife. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting also in the context of the book and now the podcast where you're sharing some of these conversations because you, it sounds like you very deliberately sought out a really diverse array of people to sit down with. So Having sat down with so many people now, um, across different ages, different cultures, different ethnicities, um, different sexualities and different genders, 
you've been able to see so many different patterns and so many different repeated experiences. And I'm curious about those common patterns that you saw across everyone. One of the, the big curiosities is what you saw around um, vulnerability and the role of vulnerability in long-term relationships. Well, I was surprised by the, the male vulnerability. <laughs> you know, a few minutes ago, when Phil was describing the phone call to me, it's so vulnerable for him to say, I never thought anybody would be this irreplaceable. It was a very vulnerable thing to say. I mean, he was saying, I'm, I'm lost without you. It's hard for you to say it because it's so personal. Right. Uh, and I think that for men, they're, they're just not. I mean, that's why I did Free to Be You and Me. Women are taught to express their feelings. Men are not. Men are taught not to express their feelings. Only sissies cry and all that. So the, the thing is, is that a couple of the men, many of the men, were very vulnerable. As vulnerable as Phil was uh, to say that to me on the phone, uh, Ted Danson, who's on his third marriage, uh, to Mary Steenburgen, who's on her second, and they have a wonderful marriage. They're a fabulous couple. They've been married 30 years now. And I said to him, how did you have the optimism to get married a third time? I mean, I could barely get married once. And he said, I knew I had to stop the lying. I said, what were you lying about? He said, well, I was unfaithful. That's one thing. He said, but I was lying about who I was because I, I had this image of myself as a man. And a man doesn't feel bad about anything. A man doesn't, you know, if he gets rejected, he bounces right back. A man doesn't, doesn't cry. A man doesn't have a bad day and so forth. So he said, I would come through the door at night just having had a horrible day where I felt so much pain, but I wouldn't admit it. So I just come in like everything was great. He said, so the women that I was with never knew who the hell I was. They never saw the real me. They only saw this version of me that I wanted to show them. He said, when I met Mary, Mary Steenburgen, and his wife, he said, I realized that she didn't play that dance. She was really looking at me and expecting more, to the, the realness, the authentic Ted. And that's what made them fall in love and why they've been together 30 years. That was such an interesting thing for him to say. And I think a lot of men do that. They don't want to show how much they hurt, how, how much they get battered around. Women do. Women cry and say, I had a terrible day. You know, we have no trouble with that. Uh, even strong women like me, we don't, we don't see that as a weakness. We see that as just telling the truth. Men see that as, as a weakness. And that keeps them from being good married partners. Right. And then uh, Bob Woodward, of all people, really showed his vulnerability. His, his mother left when he was 12. His mother ran off with his father's best friend. So at 12 years old, he realized that, oh, whoa, we're in this alone. And then he got married and he went into the Navy or the Marines, I don't remember which. And while he was in the Marines or whatever, his wife left him. Then he, and then he went, oh, I'm alone. And then his second marriage also broke up after they had a child and she left. And so he was firmly in the belief that we're all alone in this world. And then he married this wonderful woman, Elsa Walsh. They've been married over 30 years. 
who what what he wanted in life and 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 what he could give to her and what she gave to him you know he found you know a way to have a good relationship but up until then he had been really scarred you know by all these women leaving him his mother and his two wives and was very vulnerable i mean i i just <clears throat> fell in love with him i Bob Woodward, because you think of Bob Woodward as this guy like Mike Wallace, you know, who really goes after people. I had an awakening to the consequences of jealousy. And I was fascinated with the Mark Consuelo story, who called his wife from Boston. She was in New York. And he said, what are you doing? And she said, well, I'm cleaning the apartment and I'm cleaning the bathroom. And he thought that answer was kind of fishy. So literally, he got on an airplane without telling her, flew home, got to the apartment, went up to their floor, and ran past her, who was, she was standing at the door, looking for the tall, dark stranger behind the drapery. And it was a reminder of how that feature, which I think a lot of people suffer, men especially, suffer from in a marriage, is draining. It can wear you out. I had jealousy when Marlowe made a movie with Chris Christopherson, and they had a love scene. Well, I mean, that love scene, I thought, lasted like maybe an hour and a half. It was four minutes. Yeah. So, you know, I I was jealous. And, I, you know, it is, you I think... You were jealous over more things than that. You were jealous about a lot of... I was. You know, I mean, here's herself, the actress, <laughs> uh, who was a bad thought when I first met her. So I could only imagine how she was met by other men. And she was... Meeting a lot of men in her work. So this was, this was something I had to get over, and it took a while. But I recall how draining it was. Jealousy really saps your strength. And, you know, if you can just get confident where you're not suspicious all the time, it makes life a lot Better. And it's a lot better. And it's very hard on the person at whom the jealousy is directed because jealousy is not about what you're doing. It's about what the man or the woman who's jealous has got going inside of them. It's their, as Phil said, confidence. It's their lack of confidence at their own, or it's their own suspicious nature or paranoia. It has nothing to do with what you're doing. And that's, that's hard on a person. Because you think to yourself, well, what am I doing? Am I doing something wrong? Did I do what I said? It's, 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 it's difficult. And I was very glad when, and it, it, it wasn't a long time. It probably was somewhere in the middle of our marriage together that you kind of dropped that and you told me what a relief it was that you felt the trust and didn't have to feel that anymore. Right. I mean, I really deep, I felt I had graduated to some different level of uh, maturity. <laughs> but it did make, for me, it made life so much easier if you can get past that. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You know, one, one of the other patterns that I seem to see come up a lot with different couples who you sat down with, and also as I sit here with both of you, I'm noticing in a very strong way, is that they see each other. You see each other. I, I can see you visually that those listening can will just hear this, but what I can see is you keep looking at each other. You keep noticing each other. Um, we had uh, a little while back a couple named Julie and John Gottman on the show. They have been researching love and marriage for decades together. Um, one is a clinician and one is an academic, and they run something that's commonly known as the Love Lab. And they've done a lot of research. And one of the things that they found, they, they were actually able to predict with 95% accuracy whether a marriage would survive six years out. And when they really looked at, well, what were they looking at? They noticed that people were making bids for each other's attention and affection all day long. And when people turned towards those bids, it was really good for the relationship. When people didn't notice them or even turned against them, it was terrible. And what they found was that what they called the masters of these long-term relationships they noticed the bids and they turned towards them 86% of the time. Whereas the, what they call the disaster relationships, most of them ended, they only turned towards the bids 33% of the time. Oh. And it seems like I'm married and I'm dated my wife and, and we've been together for close to 30 years. We're married 24. And looking at both of you, I'm watching you notice each other. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's literally, you're, you're looking at me, but you're also, you keep looking at each other. You keep noticing the different things, the quirks, the things. And I'm wondering if that resonates with you as something critical. 
I don't know that I noticed that. I don't. Uh, uh, well, I don't have a conscience, a conscious uh, feeling about that. But I guess as you, now that you express it, I guess uh, face contact, eye contact is a revealing uh, feature of anybody's behavior. I, but I mean, in terms of the couples that we interviewed, I don't remember noticing that, whether they did or, or they didn't. No, you I know. didn't. Uh, you know, I was so nervous about <laughs> hoping that the interview would be going well. <laughs> and uh, after over an hour, when we would finally say, thank you, goodbye. Three hours. Yeah, really. And Some the, of them were. Yeah, they were. But they were fun. I mean, I there was a couple of them that I didn't even want to be over. I really enjoyed it. And a couple of people, we stayed over and had a meal with them and had a glass of wine. I mean, it was a, it, it was fun. We made new friends. It was um, interesting in that way. So the, um, as we sit here today, um, you're both working on the second project, which is a podcast called Double Date, which is really the extension to a certain extent of this book and where you're sharing the audio of a lot of these conversations. I'm wondering, as you revisit these conversations and you sit down and you re-listen to them and then you put them out into the world, how you're experiencing, um, whether you have it's reminded you of anything or there are things that you actually didn't notice or see the first time through that you're sort of revisiting. I think I just was very touched by them that they would uh, give so much of themselves. You said that at one point, that you were surprised. Right. I, I noticed how much they opened up. If we offered something yeah. about us, personal, uh, that seemed to open the door for, I tell you what, uh, having interviewed one-on-one -on, -one on my television show for almost 30 years, partnering for an interview really has its advantages. I think it means that the subject, especially if there's two of them, two on two, is more likely to engage in a conversation with you that's going to have, often, a lot of personal information uh, that we didn't beat them over the head to uh, expose of of themselves. They offered it, and often with enthusiasm. It was a real uh, discovery for, I think, both of us. It was fun. And, you know, after we, we, we've been interviewed by people <clears throat> for the press or television interviews, and they've all said to us, especially the print people, they said, I, I never would have gotten those stories out of people. You know, the, the amazing thing is, is that you were able to get them to tell really personal things. And we said, well, I think it's because we didn't really go in there as reporters. We went in there as another couple. Right. So it was two couples hanging out together, having a glass of wine or a cup of tea and some noshes that everybody put out because when we went to their homes, they put out things for us. It was a double date. It was two couples. That's a if, lot different. If we... Am if we express personal stories about ourselves, they would do the same. Right. It's amazing how the door seemed to blow open. That's different than a reporter. A reporter is such a one-sided conversation. 
They ask questions, you answer. You know, we, we, we often ask them, how do you fight? Because it's not, it, it's not just how you fight, it's how do you come back from one? And a lot of people can't. You know, there are people in this world who go days without speaking to each other. I mean, that is so beyond anything I could do. I mean, I, I, I cannot speak maybe for an hour, yeah. but I, I have to get back to it, you know. And th that, there are people who do that, and what? James Carville said, when you find yourself arguing, he said, she said, I didn't say, I didn't mean. Circular, I thought, circular. Yeah, around and around. Somebody should say, oh, let's kick this can down the road. And it sounded so superficial at the time. But not long after the interview, during one of our arguments, who what, did I say? You said it. I said, oh, let's kick this can down the road. And, of course, we both started, started laughing. laughing and thought, this is great. It, you know, something to stop it. Didn't you say, no, you said, I said, you put it there, you put it there. And it's of no importance, and you won't remember it two days from now. But it's, so, it's such an interesting thing to have some codes to stop, stop any of that sort of bickering thing. One of our guests said, if you're, if you're having an argument, the best way to get over it is you should sleep tushy to tushy. <laughs> so we thought about that for a while, too. And uh, that is Yiddish, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. My Irish guy here speaks <laughs> Yiddish. I love the, uh, the, the simple uh, answers there. Um, Another Yiddish word. So uh, um, there's a word in Yiddish which uh, is pronounced nachis, and it translates roughly to the joy that you feel for somebody that you love so heartedly that you experience their success as your own. Huh. And I think that's a lot of what you've been talking about. Right. And that's also called kvelling, right? Yeah. Yeah. And often we talk about it in the context of children. Yes. But to, to have that feeling for a partner and a life partner, I think, right. is a really beautiful thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a very joyful thing. It feeds you. It feeds each person. If I feel it for him, that feeds me. And it feeds him to know that I'm feeling that. So both people get nourished from it. You know, I, I really think that, that marriage and love are like a plant. They need to be watered. You can't just say, I do, and then walk away and figure out what else you're going to do with your life. It needs to be watered all the time with love and attention and affection and, and observation and even interrogation. How are you feeling? What are you feeling? How can I help you? All of that is going on all the time. Maybe not in those exact words, but the attention that the other person really, do, you know, sometimes I'll say to Phil, if he's not feeling well or something, and I'll say, how are you feeling? And he'll say, fine. And I'll say, there's no information in fine. I mean, are you feeling better? Are you feeling worse? Are you feeling this? Are you feeling that? And so is engaging in it. If somebody wants to know how you feel, you know, figure out how you do feel so the other person knows what, what you state know, you're in. And that's difficult for, especially an Irishman. You know, when I would complain, you know, my complaints to my parents, my mother especially, were never validated. You know, if I said I'm tired, my mother would say, we're all tired. <laughs> you know, you weren't, you weren't, <laughs> there was no respect 
given to the complaint that you just to shared. To your feelings. Yeah, and to your feelings. We're all tired. Oh, okay. <laughs> it really is a, another way to say shut up. <laughs> it doesn't encourage. Who cares? Who cares? Yeah, it doesn't encourage right. sharing feelings. Yeah. So I feel like this is also a, a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation. I'm going to ask you both one final question. We're sitting here in this container, and the name of the show is A Good Life Project. If I offer up the phrase, to live a good life, for each of you, what comes up? To live a good life? Well, I, I think a good life has to have purpose in it, so that you have something that you work toward and that you dream about and that you feel fulfilled about. Uh, to me, that's part of a good life. And to share it with someone, to have someone that, you know, you know has your back. I, I've also, also felt that marriage and good relationships are a cushion of life. So a good life needs a cushion. You need to know that if everything is bad or sad or falling apart or you've lost someone you love or all of the things that can happen in life that are disappointing and hard, you have a cushion. You have somebody there who's going to, you know, support you through that and give you a, a soft, warm space, a shoulder, a, a hand, an arm, all of the things. Because it's a hard world. It's a, a world that's changing all the time in how it feels toward people, how it feels toward certain kinds of people. You really need something constant. So I think a good life has to have constancy in it that you can count on. I uh, wrote an autobiography about 100 years ago. And I began the first chapter by saying, when my children pleased me, I didn't tell them. That's an old Catholic, Irish, I guess, axiom. And I realize now how wrong that is. To tell your children that you're pleased when they please you is a buoyant effort for them. They feel enlarged by it. They suddenly become, in their innermost selves, more confident. And nourished, of course. Yeah, and what a, what a gift that is for them. Well, for, for my kids, it's a little late. But, you know, somewhere along the way, somebody said, too soon old, too late smart. So that's how you answer the good life? Um, yeah, I think, yeah. Let me, let me rephrase that, actually. When you think about your life and when you think about what makes it truly good, what do you think about? Well, I have a professional answer to that, but I'm afraid... No, you don't get it, but it's about life. Well, you know... Uh, <laughs> it's very hard for him to go to the personal. Well... It's not about professional and not about children. What makes you Well, when happy? I ski down a hill, <laughs> oh, I feel so free. And going over the mogul, moguls and finally getting... He's not going to do it for you, Jonathan. 
He refuses. Well, That's all right. You did very well. You really, you did. Well, thanks. You did as, you I feel did, better. You now. did the best you could do. Well, maybe they can just take that part of the interview <laughs> out. I've been known to wind up on the no, editing no, room no, floor I, 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 more I, than once. No, you don't. You're fine. I, I think in the exchange between you, while, while you were answering that question, we actually had the answer in what happened between both of you. The energy of love and support that came out goes a long way to answering the question. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> thank you both. Thanks, Jonathan. So before you leave, if you love this episode, safe bet you will also love the conversation that we had with Julie and John Gottman, who are the founders of the legendary Love Lab, and their deep dive into what love and what long-term relationships and marriages really are all about. You'll find a link to Julie and John's episode in the show notes. Even if you don't listen now, be sure to click and download so it's easy to play when you're on the go. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app so you'll never miss an episode and then share the Good Life Project love with friends. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.